Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Usually we think of permaculture as a system for land and food where humans work with the flows and systems of nature. Can we also apply permaculture to societies, to our justice or education systems? Permaculture is an approach to systems that is about finding yield in every aspect of our process and ultimately creating closed loop infrastructures where waste is eliminated. The understanding of this idea comes from a paradigm shift regarding how humans can interact with nature and with each member of our species a reshuffling of ideas and concepts that have long been a part of our lives and understanding that there are new and better methods of accomplishing even the most basic parts of living on this planet. In this episode of The Extra Environmentalists, we're talking about permaculture and looking deeper into ways we can understand our built ecosystem. And also today, we're joined by our correspondent and editor, Kevin, who has been at all of these events over the last few years recording material. Kevin, uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, I've been covering various green building and permaculture events for the past three years now, and I've captured literally hundreds of hours of audio. This episode is the first release of that content since our initial permaculture episodes in 57 and 58. And that was 30 episodes ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's taken a while to gather all the material I need to start putting these comprehensive shows together. Thanks to a major metamorphosis in my life, I finally have the time to do this. And we've got some great shows coming up, and I hope you enjoy this first installment as we delve into permaculture. Here's a piece from Kevin's multiple interviews at Northwest Permaculture Convergence 2013 and North American Permaculture Convergence 2014. My simple definition of permaculture is permaculture is applied common sense. And what we do is we look for common sense solutions to the challenges of our times, basically. We're not too ambitious or anything about that. We just take it all on uh, because it needs to be taken on in this time when we live in a culture that in so many ways has been pacified. I must say that it's really delightful 
to be alive in the early 21st century right now because we've gone through that requisite 20 years from idea introduction to widespread adoption by society with permaculture and much of the sustainability movement and including sustainable agriculture and appropriate technologies. You know, permaculture is in many ways the most developed component of the movement that is coming Anybody that can look up and see what's coming really serves us well. You know, if we could get set up and get ready, we are the future of the human race, and this is the time when it's all going to come together. We need to have some people that really rescript the entire human condition and demonstrate and showcase what it's going to look like. The time is right for a new way of living, a new way of being, and rescripting the entire human condition right out of ourselves. Creatively use and respond to change. This is one of the David Holmgren's articulation of one of the permaculture principles. Creatively use and respond to change. Be a visionary. See the trends. Don't wear blinders. See where this is going and act accordingly. You know, step it up here because it's, it's stepping up. Mother Nature is stepping it up and we know why and we know how and we have some ideas of what's going to happen and now whoosh, tune in to your <laughs> highest potential here to work with what we got going on because this is the theme of our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. God willing, it continues on from there. You know, I teach my son, here's what's going on. Here's how we grow things. Here's how we do things. I'm trying to equip my family and my students with the tools to be adaptable and fluid. Right now, we're kind of in this linear pathway in terms of how we do problem solving. Oh, problem, solution. And we just go to the, the book of solutions. Oh, pick that one. That's what everybody else does. We'll just do that and then move on to the next problem. We just develop a solution and then we just go with it. It's a Band-Aid approach. And that's, you know, within permaculture is looking at its whole systems because it's a recognition that, you know, as John Muir said, when we pull on any part of nature, we realize it's connected to the whole. So if we're going to reorient civilization for our collective long-term survival, we're going to have to look at the lessons to learn from nature about how nature has managed to exist for countless eons beyond our comprehension and to take natural principles of how ecosystems continue to function over long periods of time and adapt them into the way our civilization is structured. I guess one of the things that I feel like is a, a challenge is it seems like the demand for the knowledge-based design systems that permaculture represents is going to exponentially expand, particularly as we enter these stages of empire and decline. As that becomes more iffy, you know, and people's personal security is not being met by the institutions that they assumed it would be met by. The government won't save us. Corporations aren't going to save us. They're both bereft of the ideas that are actually necessary to pull this kind of thing off by and large. And they're mostly intellectually and morally bankrupt. So I'm not really looking at those kind of institutions to pull our chestnuts out of the fire in any kind of reasonable time frame. So, you know, it's really inherent upon us 
to begin the process, and we're plenty smart enough to do it. Most of the technologies and knowledge bases that we need to build regenerative and sustainable systems that provide for human needs are in place. We don't have to go through a big learning curve on that. It's becoming more sophisticated and more available. As many people in this profession know, the term permaculture is hard to understand and hard to define by some people. And so who is it that we're sharing the information with and how can we speak to them so they can understand and utilize the tools and the principles to change their lives? Because it's an opportunity to change every aspect of one's life from their economic stream to their plants to their social connections. Once they've been turned on to learning from natural systems and that that's life-giving, They just want to infuse that in everything. They can still keep their passion, but now they're integrating that awareness of, I want to make sure that what I'm doing allows for others to thrive. Permaculture as a design principle teaches that we need to model the way we live on natural processes. We have to look at regenerating ecosystems rather than just seeing a forest as a place to extract materials so they can be turned into dollar bills. And it's that regenerative aspect of nature that if we're going to survive as a civilization, as a society, we have to reorient towards a restorative culture rather than a used once culture. If we're going to have an economic system, it needs to be based on the fact that physical reality is more important than some fantasy that we can have a quadrillion dollars and it will mean something. An observation is one of the first of the principles in permaculture and really look at the systems we're surrounded in. We're embedded in them, so it's sometimes very difficult for us to recognize at what level we have been programmed. But it starts at preschool. It starts at home, you know, with stressed out parents who are trying to meet certain economic goals so that they can educate their children to go into that same existence, eking out another economic goal. And everyone is struggling to reach the top. And as we realize now, 1% reach the top and 99% are down below somewhere trying to climb up. So it's an incredibly competitive system. And as we say, everything in nature cooperates. So how did we go astray? And that's a question I posit in my classes. It's great to learn how to garden. It's great to learn how to become more and more self-sufficient for food and for housing and all of those things. It limits our need to be part of that wage slave economy. But we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond building lifeboats. We really have to create a system that accommodates human life, I think, as it was meant to be. Creative, without need and without want. We still have the resources to do that. I mean, we have to do our best to try and regain some semblance of integrity in the ecologies that we live in rather than in the human-made structures that we are sort of programmed in. Humans 
are an extension of the natural world. We are nature. I feel that we've been disconnected from that awareness and through that disconnection, we imagine that we're designing our reality and we're not taking into consideration that which we are. So the Industrial Revolution played a huge role in trying to solve our needs but not understanding the systems that we're embedded in. And a lot of this was new because prior to that, a lot of communities were living more within their means. They would not just recycle because it was the thing to do because you're an environmentalist. It was actually what you did when you did not have enough resources. One of the ways I define permaculture is a new buzzword for an old way of being. So we think about our ancestors and how our ancestors lived. And that if we can emulate that, that will really help us get back to a more earth-based awareness and a more local awareness and try to meet our needs in that regard. So really we're looking at how do we learn how to live large on a really small footprint. And right now we're living not just extremely large, but we're, we're living obese on an obese footprint. And it's not, not only is it not sustainable, but it's actually crumbling around us as we sit here. So in the permaculture lens, where we come from this ethical foundation of caring for the earth and by design caring for people and finding ways to share our surpluses, that implies that we have a surplus to share. So in our human habitat creation, we're not just thinking resilience, but we're thinking abundance. And we're thinking, where do we take that abundance? And it's an interesting irony for me that by starting to live within your means and starting to live within your neighborhood and starting to be in your community, you start to generate enormous abundances. And when you live outside your community and you commute to get places and you don't have time to cook meals, you don't have time for your kids, it ends up translating into a total disconnect from your habitat, which means you don't have a role to play in that community or that habitat, which means that you don't care about your habitat, which means that you'll actually damage it or pollute it or destroy it. So there's this instant sort of negative feedback loop that happens when you are outside your community. So my mission in permaculture even though I'm a person who loves the land and would adore living in the country, is to connect people in the city to nature. This is an important thing, that the voting population is present in that location, no matter how much you might look at it and go, oh my goodness, this is a type one error. It is an artificial environment. And what I realized when I started teaching was that people walk from their cube in the sky on the sidewalk into another building. And there's zero exposure to nature. It's very extremely separated. This is a place that is desperate for repair, for information, for education, for enlightenment. I was up in uh, New York City recently, and there w I was up on the High Line, it's called, where it's a train track that's elevated, or it was historically, and now they've made huge gardens. And these parents put their daughter down on the ground where there's soil, and it was the first time she touched soil. And it was just so amazing to me that the parents had the awareness that even though they were in the city, that they wanted to have their child have the opportunity to touch the soil, to, to just put it in her hands and to be aware of it, and then to pick up plants and to be looking at that. So an earth-based society really starts with our youth, 
our babies, in a sense, and then moving forward. A big thing that we've been thinking about lately, just because I'm about to have a child, and there's so many things that you can think of that you can do as a mistake as a parent. <laughs> and it's like pretty for sure that like you're not going to make a mistake the more time you spend outdoors with a child. As far as like an easy thing to approach, the more that the child is just used to spending their time, you know, in different kinds of weather and knowing different kinds of plants and animals. I can't foresee how that would come back and like hurt the child later on. That's just going to help them. That's one of those gifts that we can try and give them as far as how we just approach our lifestyle in general. How do we raise children to have the skill sets that they need to navigate a really changing world around us that in their lifetimes is going to change in ways we can't even anticipate? Looking at the types of problem-solving skills and critical thinking skills and just physical, hard, vocational-type skills that they don't teach in schools anymore, and how do we work with kids to get them to see themselves as part of a solution matrix? One of the things I wanted to do was raise a pattern literate kid. So even as an infant, we were hardwiring the natural patterns around us in a language and in a frame that he could understand. And at age six, I have a kid who's incredibly pattern literate and understands the cycles of life around him. He's also participated in growing food all the way through seed saving and water systems and physics and chemistry and energy flows. And I think that what people forget is there's a huge joy in learning that comes with small children where you can land these concepts on them so that it's just part of what they know rather than being 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 and all of a sudden recognizing the Fibonacci pattern or all of a sudden seeing that there's insights into design. So getting the kids up to speed at a really young age, I think, is a critical part of young education. And I encourage people to you know, look at a big hole in our permaculture world as more kids' education. There's some really cool kids out there already, and we need to be doing this starting in grade school. There's no reason the whole curriculum can't be taught through growing and preparing and cooking food. That's a really good way to uh, teach the kids starting from way young. So much of our, the patterning in our school systems and, and, and upbringing is about the individual and the importance of independence and the, that you don't need other people. Yet our, our sense of self-esteem and self-worth is constantly the product of reflections from the external. So we're inherently not independent, you know, we're interdependent. And what I see is that, you know, permaculture or, you know, any of these approaches really need to address that until we uplift the human spirit and help heal the wounds that people experience, how can they possibly make sound decisions, sound, kind, compassionate, loving decisions that will benefit the future generations? I realized, wow, I gave up everything that nurtures me in order to be a success. And I think that's a common thing to do. And even where I live now, we're trying to remodel all the buildings there. And that's more important than either harvesting the food that we're growing or helping to grow the food. Because we can, in fact, buy food. So there's these underground priorities <laughs> that are hurting us. In our society, 
there's a ball game on TV or there's some Hollywood celebrity story that's of more interest. People are too disinterested to know what's going on around them. That's not a recipe for our survival. Much along the lines of you are what you eat, you know, we are what you think, you are what you feel, you are what you express outward in your community. So I, th I think that that's a really important part of all of this. And I see that we as the permaculture community are invited to really be that which the ethics are compelling us towards. So that when people look to it, they see a scintillating gem of hope. And it's so universally recognized, the benefit that it's bringing, that there's an incredibly strong compulsion of how can I participate? How can I be part? How can I lend a hand? And whatever my skill set is, you know, I want to participate in that. I want a feeling of belonging and that level of solution without needing to discern or qualify it of just that childlike desire like you see kids playing and you want to go be part of it. You know, that's really the beauty of it is, is keeping it fun and really en enhancing the life force and making this is what w will enable us to thrive. We're really striving towards is how do we get to that place where we're mutually uplifting one another. What permaculture really has done for me is to link me with other people and give me the chance to understand that there's many people trying to do similar things who may be thinking very differently from me and to depend on that diversity of thought pattern and approach for better results. And that's been an amazing process to escape my alienation a bit <laughs> and not to automatically take the position of an outsider. And it's been very interesting becoming a teacher. Just the, the wonderfulness of working in teams to solve these difficulties. Engaging in this process with, with other people is, is really wonderful. I, I'm living a life of my dreams and I, I'm, I'm really happy. And I think that that's my vision for, for everybody is to be able to have the capacity to learn the skills to be able to be of service to the earth and to their communities and to themselves in a really good way that creates abundance for us because I can see it. It could totally happen if people could come together, bust through the glass ceilings that we all create for ourselves and live into our vision and make our decisions through love instead of through grief and fear, make them through love and power in terms of you know what we do when we get up in the morning. What we do have to do is recognize that we have a lot of work to do on ourselves and on our communities to heal the last 400 years of colonialism and the ways that we've been colonized and the way we've chosen to colonize others and the damage has been done. So it's time for us to, to take out the knife of self-blame and get on with the work of actually welcoming and nourishing each other along the way. Let's just do it. Let's heal this earth. Let's heal ourselves. Let's celebrate the work that we get to do with our bodies and our hearts and our souls.
Permaculture brings an exciting new way of thinking and a positive vision of the future. Yeah, that's what I've found. Permaculture offers a framework based on natural principles that show us how to live and create abundance in our natural systems. When I started learning about permaculture, I was amazed at how much I didn't know about my surrounding environment. The American culture that I was raised in failed to educate me in the knowledge and skills necessary to address all of these problems that we currently face. And after attending these convergences, I've really found a cohesive group that are realizing their potential to heal the earth and our culture. You know, I really like that perspective that we can be a part of a larger solution, that we can't just look to our current institutions to save us, and that we need to reorient towards a restorative culture and realize our roles as an interdependent part of a connected community that's embedded within a larger environment, not just the human-built world around us. Yeah, we need to envision a future for the human race where we realize our ultimate potential, not just meet some economic priorities. You know, something that makes sense from a larger perspective so that we can actually get excited about being here at this time with the challenges that we face. And I like to think that that's what we do with every show. We find joy in learning about the ways that we can truly make a difference. And we learn about changing our mindsets, changing the ways that we think to work just like permaculture in working with the flows and the processes of nature. Talking about making a difference, we are privileged to have Toby Hemingway, educator and award-winning author of the world's best-selling permaculture book, Gaia's Garden. His teachings have really been able to simplify the incredible complexity of natural systems and provide examples of how we can apply those lessons to our lives. Toby sat down with us for an interview and Kevin has combined that with excerpts from class Toby taught in Vancouver. Let's listen in on what he has to share about permaculture. When I'm describing permaculture to a person who's not familiar with it or perhaps isn't a gardener or just isn't thinking along the same lines that a lot of permaculturists are thinking, I really try and find out how they think. Like if I am talking to someone like an attorney, say, attorneys often get systems. They're embedded in legal systems and they can often see the big picture. They understand how people work in relationships, how the legal system works, how the police system works, how the jail system works, how the criminal system works. And once you talk with them in terms of systems like that, they understand, you know, that it's an interconnected web of people and processes. And they very often understand when you say a principle like, intervene at the most effective place in a system, make a small change for a great effect. And that that's often what we're trying to do in permaculture is learn how a system works and then get in and tweak it in the directions that we want. So that's what I'm trying to do with almost any profession is what's the language they're speaking and how can we start to think in terms of whole systems and work with them? Because they, they get their job well enough to see their job as a whole system very often. They know where the weak points are. They know where the hard points are. They know where the stacking of functions can be. They know the efficiencies, and you just work with them in those vocabularies. And that's the very exciting thing about where permaculture is going these days, is although it was originally a portmanteau of permanent and agriculture was the original definition, but now we're, we're really talking about it in terms of permanent culture. And social permaculture is, is a very hot topic these days because we've realized that the principles that we've learned from natural systems design 
can be applied not just to the garden, not just to food, not just to water, not just to energy, but to justice systems and community building and businesses and livelihood, that all those principles work for whatever system you happen to be looking at. Most of permaculture's design methods, those are all ways of creating connections. A good design is not just a bunch of stuff randomly arrayed, even if it's a bunch of really cool stuff. A good design is a bunch of cool stuff connected in beneficial ways, good relationships. It's the relationships that create a design. That's what a design is. When we look at, at something and say, that's a good design, it's because the parts are placed in beneficial relationships, whether it's visually pleasing or whether it's functionally well adapted. But a good design starts with creating connections and permaculture really focuses on what are the different kinds of connections between things and how can we use our understanding of that to help make good connections? Because there are a lot of different sorts of connections when you're designing something. And that is totally an it depends question. That's, that's, the, that's the first answer to every question in permaculture. You never give the answer, you say it depends, and then you figure out what it depends on. So we have three very different and yet complementary methods for creating relationships of three different kinds. Relationships between the elements, relationships to you, relationships to large outside forces. Those three in particular are really good at creating functional relationships and avoiding dysfunctional relationships. If that might even be more important is how not to put things in the wrong place. So that's something that permaculture really focuses on is creating those beneficial connections because that's the way to get the system to do all the work for you is if the pieces are all connected then they're all working together and you don't have to do a lot of the work. It really is about creating beneficial functional relationships. And this is what a lot of this focus on is, what are the tools for doing that? What are the tools for creating functional economic relationships, functional social relationships, functional businesses, all the things that, that we do in the city, as well as functional food systems and energy systems and all of that. But it starts with observation and creating connections. And then how do we create connections? We make them multifunctional, we use the principles of edge, we learn from our mistakes, we start small, we do all these other things. Having a good idea is very often letting go of the bad ideas, letting go of the ones that don't work. We tend to repeat those, you know, it didn't work so I'll do more of it. That's often our approach to things. Is, but this is the idea of, again, arriving at a solution. We're letting a set of criteria guide us to coming to an answer that should be suitable. We reduce our chances of failure by applying the right design method. I mean, that's really what design is about. Where does stuff go? What do we do? It's a big mystery, it's scary, you don't want to do the wrong thing. And design simply helps you make choices. There are actually methods that you can go through to arrive at solutions that have a better chance of of working than randomly chosen solutions. That's what we're doing when we're designing. So my, my own kind of definition of permaculture is that it's a, it's a toolbox for arriving at sustainable solutions to whatever, whatever question you happen to be asking. It's a design tool for decision making. And we have millions and millions of techniques out there. We have a hundred ways to build soil. We have 
tons of ways to run a business. We have a bunch of different ways for people in a room together to make decisions collectively. We have lots and lots, and we have no end of techniques. There is no shortage of techniques. The problem is deciding which technique to use for your particular situation. You know, are we going to use consensus decision making? Are we going to use majority rule? Are we going to flip a coin? Are we just going to appoint a dictator? All of those systems have their appropriate time. And rather than just defaulting to one, what permaculture helps us do is decide, OK, given our conditions, what is the proper set of techniques to be using to solve the problem that we're, that we're trying to work with? And permaculture is this universal toolkit for arriving at sustainable solutions to whatever it is. You know, I can have a, a sales team in a business and teach them permaculture design, and they will be better at what they do. And what's nice about that is it's also very insidious. Once people who are not whole systems thinkers start thinking in whole systems, it's very difficult to continue an unsustainable lifestyle. You start to really see your impact. So this is why they talk about gardening as revolution in disguise. That once you start learning from natural systems and you start to think in whole systems, you start to notice the places where you are not acting sustainably. You're not creating a more resilient future. You're depleting it. And it's hard to keep on doing that after a while. So I love the subversive aspect of permaculture. We think we're just gardening, but we're doing a lot more than that. What makes permaculture not so much unique anymore, but up until about the 1970s, design systems pretty much fell into two categories. There was what I'd call the engineering or the scientific approach to design, where we ran the numbers, you know, figured out the strengths of materials and the shear forces and, and all of these sorts of things, and built bridges and buildings, and you know, we engineered structures. That was one way of designing. And then the other major method of design was the aesthetic approach. We designed things that were beautiful. You know, we can design things that are tough and strong when we want. We can design things that are beautiful when we want. Often we don't do either, but, but we have the tools to do both of those. But the piece that was missing from most design up until about the 1970s or so was, is this going to be a good thing to design? You know, I mean, you can take classic examples like the atomic bomb. It's, like, it's a technically sweet project. That was part of why it got done, because you got these physicists who were fascinated with the idea of being able to split the atom. But ethically, anything with the word bomb in it is probably not going to be good for some people. So what permaculture and, and a number of other design systems that evolved in the 1970s, and even things like architecture, started doing was to look at the effects of what we were designing. It's amazing to me that we have been building buildings for thousands of years, and architecture has been a profession for at least a couple of centuries. But it wasn't until the 1970s and even 1980s that architects started doing what are called post-occupancy studies. They started asking, are these actually nice buildings to be in? You know, they, they didn't ask those questions until really recently. So this whole field of design really shifted in the 70s to people starting to ask those questions. Is this design going to leave the world a better place? Is this design going to be a good place for folks to work? Are they going to be happy in these buildings? And so permaculture came along at about that time. And this is why it really starts with these three ethics. So the first question when, before you design something is, is it going to care for the Earth? So you can think of all the things that you could do that 
care for the earth. So that's the first question you ask. The second one is, is what you're planning on doing going to care for people? And there's a lot of overlap between those two. You know, a lot of things that care for the earth turn out to care for people and vice versa. Not always. I mean, I could you know, imagine giving everybody a million dollars. That would be care for people. And it might not really be a very good thing for the earth. But there are a lot of things that are. And so we've got a, a linkage between those two ethics. And then the third one is that when you care for the earth, it is very productive and abundant. I don't see a lot of scarcity out there when the earth is well cared for. When you care for people, they are also creative and amazing and brilliant when they live in a fear-free environment. Both of those systems will, will create a surplus more than they need. Nature's doing it. Happy people are doing it. So you have the surplus that permaculture generates, good design generates. And you got to figure out something to do with that. We used to say share the surplus, give it away. But it needs to be a little bit more directed than that, because everybody would be happy to take your surplus. Goes, oh, sure, you want to offer me that? So we try and return it or reinvest it in the systems that it came from. So it goes back to caring for the earth and to caring for people. So it's this interlinked web work. But that's where we start in permaculture design, and that makes it somewhat unique in that we're starting from an ethical place. We're starting from, is this going to be a good thing to do, and what are we going to do with the surplus that our brilliant design is going to generate? If, if your design is not generating a surplus, or if you're hoarding all the surplus, you probably need to do some re redesigning. Now, a well-designed system is pretty self-regulating. When you have to impose a lot of regulation from outside, that tells me that the system is not well-designed. Good natural systems are pretty self-regulating. But this is the beginning. This is why those ethics are up at the top. We ask right from the, the beginning, is our design going to do these things? The technical part is really easy. You know, we would be totally sustainable already if it were just technical stuff. It reminds me of Y2K, you know, when, when the calendar changed to the new millennium or to the year 2000, everybody you know, had to rewrite a bunch of software because everyone thought that every computer-operated system was going to break down. And we rose to that task. We wrote millions and millions and millions of lines of new code. And I remember being in a bar on midnight, 1999, and the clock ticked over and the lights stayed on. So we did it. Hooray. If it had been a political problem, we would still be sitting in the dark. You know, that's the issue with sustainability. It's not a technical issue. It's a human issue. And that's why I'm interested in what I'd call urban permaculture or social permaculture, because it addresses the human side of it. Everything would be hunky-dory if we just didn't have to actually get along with other people. You know, this is the problem with intentional communities, the problem with families, the problem with government. It's just making sure that everybody's needs get met and resolving those. So that's one of the many reasons we start with these ethics. If we can make our systems do this, we're in pretty good shape. But that's the beginning of permaculture and any kind of really resilient and responsive design system. Is it, it asks, is this going to be a good thing to do, and what are the consequences of our doing it? The principles are essentially looking at natural systems or looking at indigenous cultures that have been 
working in the same place for thousands of years, and figuring out what they're doing to make it work. And that was really Mollison's vision and how permaculture got started. Mollison was in the Tasmanian rainforest. I think the, most of you know who Bill Mollison is, the, the co-founder of the whole permaculture concept. He was censusing marsupials for the United Nations in the late 1950s in the Tasmanian rainforest. Sitting in the rainforest looking around, he just had this insight of, I'll bet we could learn how to design systems that are as, I doubt if he used these words, but sustainable, resilient, you know, as productive and lush and self-renewing as these natural systems. And that was a task that he set himself for the next 20 years or so, is what is nature doing that makes her so sustainable? Why is it that when we build something, that the minute we're done with it, it starts to fall apart? You know, you put up a building, you put up a house, and immediately the sunlight hits it and the paint starts to fade or the rain falls on it and it starts to leak and grows mold. And you know, our systems start to degrade as soon as we finish building them and it's a lifetime of maintenance to keep them going. Natural systems, once they're established, they just get better over time, usually. There, of course, there are cases where they don't, but the general trend is, more biomass, more productivity, more lushness, more complexity, more richness of patterns, more closing of loops, more recycling of nutrients over time. When you think of what happens when you plant a seed, this little system gets going that just gets bigger and better and lusher over time. The sun shines on it and it gets bigger. The rain falls on it, it doesn't turn moldy or leak, it gets bigger because it gets happier and healthier because of the rain falling on it. If we were designing the way nature designs, then when it rained on your house or the sun shone on your house, it would like pop out a new wing or something like that. <laughs> You know, that's what good ecological design would do, is use these natural forces to just get better over time. So that's what these principles are, is Mollison and later on his undergraduate student, David Holmgren in the 1970s, worked out what they felt nature was doing to create these self-renewing, incredibly productive, ridiculously efficient systems. And so the principles are the guidelines. You can kind of think of them as indicators of sustainability. If you are doing these principles, if your design, your place, whatever it is you're up to, your community, your business is following many of these principles, then there's a good chance that what you're doing is sustainable, is renewable, is even regenerative. So I think of sustainable as the midpoint between systems that are degenerative the stuff that is breaking things down. Many of our industrial systems, human systems, are degenerative. They pollute, they degrade, they leave wherever they are worse off for their being there rather than better off in ecological terms. And then at the other end of the spectrum are regenerative activities where things just get better over time. There's more productivity, more lushness, more richness, more abundance more healthy ecological practices. Cleaner air, cleaner water, more fertile soil. I mean, we have indicators that we can use. Increase or no decrease in biodiversity, a whole bunch of things we can look at. When those are improving, we're doing something that's regenerative. So we need to be somewhere over here from sustainability, because the other question people ask is, what is it we're sustaining? You know, do we want to sustain just what we have now? Or are we all that really happy with it that we want to have it stay just like this? 
No, probably not. We want to move over that way towards regenerative systems. And we have so many degenerative systems in place that we need to build regenerative systems to cure and heal the damage that those degenerative systems have done. Places that I see a lot of really exciting activity going on in these regenerative systems is understanding the cooperative model as opposed to the competitive model. The competition, it's like a froth on top of a giant sea of cooperation. That when people compete with each other, they've already agreed on lots and lots of the rules. When sports teams play, they've agreed on the rules of the game, where they're gonna play, what uniforms they're gonna wear, how long the game is gonna last. There's, there's all this cooperation that's already there that we kind of take as invisible. And the same thing is, happens in, say, livelihood in businesses. That I'm seeing the emergence of what we like to call business guilds, which are groups of businesses that work together and support one another rather than seeing other businesses as competition. And even examples like there were some restaurants where I used to live in Portland that one was a breakfast and lunch place. The one next door to it was a dinner place. The dinner place owned lovely outdoor seating and the breakfast and lunch place figured out how to make a trade with the dinner place for the seating during breakfast and lunch. It didn't interfere with the dinner restaurant. The breakfast and lunch place prepared soups and a few other meals, some other dishes for the dinner restaurant in exchange for the use of their space. And various other businesses got involved in that. A local cheese store started providing cheese for the breakfast and lunch place, and the breakfast and lunch place provided lunches for the cheese store. So the places that traditionally would have been competing, because they're all restaurants competing with one another, found that there were niches that each did not occupy, that there were places where they could nourish one another and feed one another and support one another. And it's these interlinking relationships that build strong businesses where you've got guaranteed markets, you've got expenses reduced because you're pooling resources with other businesses. So this idea of a cooperative model rather than a competitive model and seeing the opportunities and seeing things as win-win rather than win-lose is a huge paradigm shift that I think businesses are going through. So what I'm taking away from that segment is that permaculture is about creating functional cooperative relationships that certainly apply to a lot of aspects in our lives and in our societies. I like how Toby asks the question, is what we really have worth sustaining? Are we really happy with the way the world is? It certainly seems to me that our current economic models are primarily based upon extractive and degenerative processes. I really don't think we can even contemplate how our actions could bring about permanent culture that would last over time. Add to that, we just seem to continually go on with faulty thinking and we don't let go of bad ideas. You know, it's just a continuation of madness. Never stopping to think that if something isn't working, perhaps we should stop doing it instead of just trying to do more of it. And I really liked how Toby was saying that sometimes the best idea is letting go of bad ideas that aren't working for us. And collectively, we're seeing so many of our social systems and our policies that simply aren't working. But instead of trying to let go of them, we just double down because there's potentially people that would lose 
and losing hurts. It really feels painful to lose something. And instead of just taking that little loss now compared to the bigger losses that are mounting, we keep reinforcing those systems. And we see that whether we're talking about the Greek debt crisis or water crises in different parts of the world. Yeah, and the stakeholders that are losing are the ones that are in power. And letting that power go makes people feel a lot of pain, like you're saying, Justin. Another point that I really enjoyed that Toby made during this talk was about how gardening is really a revolution in disguise. And we think we're just gardening, but we're doing a lot more than that. We're learning about how systems work. We're learning about how a whole kind of community works together. We're seeing the inefficiencies and we're correcting for those. And as you get better at gardening, you kind of become a better revolutionary as well. You see the parts of the system that don't work and you make corrections and you kind of get a better picture of how the whole system is working. And I thought that was a really interesting point as well. I think our entire world would be completely different if we looked through the lens of permaculture's three ethics to see if something was the right thing to do in the first place. Just look at the way we've arranged the way we live. For those of us in cities, we're completely disconnected from nature and from the resources that provide for our needs. The suburbs aren't much better with their lawns. It certainly aren't functional ecosystems. I guess you could try to justify it the way we live as care of people, but it certainly doesn't care for the earth. And- Our world is incredibly complex, and that means that we don't always see the immediate consequences of our actions today. And in our next segment, we're going to hear from Toby as he addresses this disconnection and the shift in mindset that's needed to realize our interconnectedness. I think one of the challenges in looking at the urban environment compared to the rural environment is that they have been separated so much. We have dense urban areas and extremely rural areas, and the only gradient in between is kind of suburban sprawl. So we don't have rural areas that are well integrated. There's been a removal of people from rural areas. Small towns are failing, getting smaller. And I think if we want successful rural areas, we need to reinvigorate them. We need, in a sense, to be moving people back from the cities to rural areas, or rather than enormous farms that are hundreds of thousands of hectares or however big they are, returning to a lot more small farms and having villages that are actually inhabited rather than places where there's a feed store and a gas station and not much more, to have actual real towns in rural areas. That as long as we have rural areas as kind of becoming these feedstocks for the urban areas that are just meant to supply urban areas and they don't really have a life of their own, we're going to have that problem in rural areas where people, they have to make long commutes to get to whatever the nearest city is. They can only shop at the big box stores because all the local places are gone. So reinvigorating rural areas by creating broader forms of livelihood in them is something that I would be working at in trying to get people back onto the land 
to, to actually create more small farms than a few large farms so that we've got more vibrant rural communities to begin with where there's livelihood to be made and interesting things going on in them. When I start to think of where I would like to see civilization go in terms of the, the paradigms and in terms of really addressing fundamental needs and a truly sustainable civilization, what I look at is moving from an agricultural society to what you would call a horticultural society. That this was previously thought to be a kind of unstable transition state between hunter-gatherer and agriculture. You went through this brief period of horticultural kind of gardening societies, and then you discovered agriculture and everybody became farmers. And it turns out that the horticultural phase actually is a very stable state for a culture to be in. That many indigenous cultures are now being reclassified as horticultural, as garden-based kind of plant tenders and gardeners as opposed to farmers. And to me, this is a much more sustainable way of living because a, a horticultural society finds niches within the existing ecosystem that can produce food. An agricultural society destroys the existing ecosystem and turns it into food producing areas. So that would be, to me, one of the fundamental changes that we need to make is learning how to allow existing ecosystems to remain and to thrive, but begin creating opportunities for human needs to be met in those ecosystems. Because if we don't take care of the larger ecosystems, we're dead along with everything else. And I think that horticulture, in terms of a way of living like agriculture and like foraging, other basic ways that human beings have found to make it work on this planet, that horticulture at this point offers us a lot of opportunities and a lot of chances, and it fits in with this idea of much smaller scale, of much more local control, of much flatter hierarchies, of much more distributed economic systems and justice systems and legal systems and all that as well. Much flatter hierarchies in horticultural societies than there are in agricultural ones. What often happens as people do make this transition to you know, whole systems thinking or long-term thinking or whatever you want to call it, is that we start thinking almost solely in the long term. This is the cause of burnout in a lot of activist groups where we're looking at the big picture, we're working really hard, we're drinking a lot of coffee, we're staying up late, we're going to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting and we burn ourselves out because we're not doing the short-term steps that provide us a, a yield. It's kind of the, the idea that was popular a while ago of planting a retirement walnut grove. That you'd get you know, a few acres of land and you'd plant it with walnuts, walnut trees, and you'd take really good care of those trees so that the trunks were nice and straight and there were no branches going on for the lower 30 feet. And then in 40 years you would harvest all the walnut trees and sell them as veneer logs for many, many dollars per square foot, you know, as, as incredibly expensive wood, and you'd get, you know, a million dollars for your five acres of walnut trees. The problem is, you got to take care of them for 30 or 40 years. And meanwhile, there's nothing coming in, and, and they all got abandoned. No one was interested in taking care of walnuts for 40 years because you need something to go on in the short term. So when you plant your walnut trees and you're thinking 40 years in advance, pop in a few radishes so that in three weeks you'll have something, <laughs> something to munch on. The, the principal thing is just understanding what the system will yield sustainably and how to set it up that way and to take care of yourself while you're doing it. And it's just so easy for us to go and be all altruistic and work really hard and then burn ourselves out. 
In particular, we push against enormous forces. It's a fairly reactive activity to do. Somebody does something that we don't like and we try to stop them from doing it. And then they find a different way of doing something we don't like and we try to stop them from doing it. It's hard to get nourishment. It's very hard to have long-term victories in something like that. One slip and, oop, we've lost that forest. You know, we've lost that watershed. And the reason that I like permaculture so much is because it's very solutions-oriented. We're trying to create positive models. And I have shifted from a more traditional environmental activist background of protest or opposition to creating positive solutions, creating functional models that people can be inspired by and that they move over to. Everywhere we just got the sense of people are nervous, people are understanding that we are coming to some crisis point. People know that it's not it, the big it is not working all that well anymore. Many people just want to blame somebody, you know, it's Harper's fault, it's Obama's fault, it's, it's whoever's fault, it's the left-wingers, it's the right-wingers. But once they kind of get over the blame part, it's like, okay, so what do we do? And this is where I feel that permaculture and all of these other things that are like permaculture are offering hope, is when people do reach that, that freak out point or that crisis point, we can say, look at this. Isn't this lovely what we've got going over here? Wouldn't you love to hang out in our food forest? Wouldn't you like to be in this place of great abundance? Really, it's, isn't this beautiful? Don't you want to come over here? We want to make it sexy. We want to make it cool. We want to make it fun. We want to make it easy, um, which is why I keep harping on the fact that beauty is a function, that early permaculture was pretty funky looking. It was big piles of mulch and gray water systems and cardboard sticking out from under sheet mulch and things like that. And we're learning to make it really, really beautiful so that people see it as a beautiful thing. You know, other people will get inspired by it just by being a model. My friend Penny Livingston says, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a model is worth a thousand pictures. If you can have a functional model of a great life, that is gonna turn people on, whether it's a successful business or cool idea or landscape or school or whatever it is. But a model of something that's functional, that's going in the direction that we're trying to go is really, really worth a lot. Paradigm, it was originally really brought into our vocabulary by a philosopher of science named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. But he was really the first person to look at how we start with ideas that everybody really accepts, and then we start to run into little glitches in them, and things aren't quite working, and then gradually more and more stuff isn't working, just the way the old Earth-centered solar system. They kept having to add on these little epicycles and strange little systems to account for why some planets sometimes move backwards and things like that until finally, you know, Kepler and Galileo and those folks came along and said, no, no, if you put the sun at the center, it fixes all of that. And that was the paradigm shift that was needed to correct all the problems. And we are in the midst, I think, of an enormous paradigm shift where for the whole history of the human race, the main challenge facing us has just been meet human needs. And it didn't really matter how we met them as long as it worked, right? We could just harvest whatever food we needed, cut down whatever trees we needed for fuel, because it was an enormous planet as far as we were concerned. Our impact was pretty negligible. So it was just meet human needs. That was our paradigm. And now, with seven billion of us, it suddenly becomes meet human needs while preserving ecosystem health. 
there's this whole other piece on it that we have to take into account. And in order to do that, you have to make that shift over to whole systems thinking, because ecosystems are whole systems and we're embedded in whole systems. So that to me is the gigantic paradigm shift that the entire human race needs to be making and is making right now is from just simply meet needs any old way to meet our needs while preserving and enhancing ecosystem health. That's a pretty big shift. So permaculture, I think, is part of that paradigm shift. And in order to grasp permaculture, you have to see that paradigm shift as something that is in the process of happening. There's a really excellent article out there. It's by a woman named Donella Meadows, whom some of you have probably heard of. And it's called Places to Intervene in a System. It's actually part of a book that she wrote a while ago just called Thinking in Systems. This article itself is out on the web for free. And what she's done in it is listed 12 different places, sort of classes of interventions that you can make in a system starting with the sort of least effective where you have to make a big change for a small effect. And then as you move up, going to places where you can have larger and larger effects for kind of a given amount of energy. So the, the least effective place to intervene is what she calls basically twiddling the dials or turning the faucets. It's kind of like you, you have a tub and the water's not coming in properly, it's the wrong temperature and it's draining too much and the tub is leaking and it takes too long for the water to heat up and all, all you can do is turn the faucets. You know, a little bit more hot and then 30 seconds later, oh wait, it's too hot, you turn the faucet down and oh wait, now it's too cold, so you turn the cold, no, no, now the tub's starting to overflow, so. Whereas if you're understanding the system better, maybe it means you need a different kind of hot water heater. Maybe the water heater needs to come closer to where the tub is. There are other levels that you can intervene at. And she eventually gets to the point where, and she talks about a very effective place to intervene is what kind of feedbacks are set up in the system. What, what is being listened to in the system. She gives an example that I really love of a subdivision in Scandinavia where several hundred houses were built that were essentially identical. And then they noticed after a few years that roughly a third of the houses had a much lower electric bill than the other two thirds of the houses. And yet the houses were virtually identical, so what was going on? And when they looked at what was happening, they found that there had been two different electrical contractors in building the subdivision. And in two thirds of the houses, they had put the electric meter in the basement where no one ever saw it. And in one third of the houses, the other contractor had put the electric meter in the front hall where people saw it all the time. And when you see those numbers whirling by, it's like, whoa, what did we leave on? <laughs> so simply that feedback, just creating a little loop where people could see what they were doing. There was no law passed, you know, no punishment, no increase in electric rates or anything like that to drive people's behavior. It was simply seeing how much electricity they were using voluntarily encourage them to re reduce their consumption. So information and feedback loops, the rules of a system, this is why getting on rulemaking committees is a very powerful leverage point, is if you can change the rules, then everything below it in the hierarchy changes. But she says that the top of the list is paradigm. It's what is your worldview. Shifting your worldview 
is, I mean, it can be difficult, but it's an incredibly effective leverage point. And that's part of why permaculture to me is so effective and also why it's so hard to define because I think to truly grasp permaculture, you need to shift from a kind of reductionist, fragmented worldview to a whole systems worldview. And we're generally, in our culture, we're not taught to think in whole systems. We don't have a whole systems worldview. Once you've made that choice, once you've, once you've learned to think in whole systems, once you've changed your paradigm to whole systems thinking, all sorts of other things become really obvious and transparent, and you become aware of where you are essentially messing up, you know, where you're creating more mess than you need to, where you're consuming more resources, where your inefficiencies are, where your degenerative systems are. And that, that comes from that paradigm shift. So for Meadows, the highest level is in terms of the paradigm that you're operating under, and everything is below that. But the most common one is turning the knobs. You know, like, let's raise taxes, let's lower taxes. You know, that's a really common one for policymakers. Uh, an example someone gave me, which I really liked, was we talk about the problem with obesity and, and just food-related things having to do with obesity and diabetes and all of that. And so we're told, you know, change your diet. That's twiddling the knobs. Eat more of this and less of that. That's the very low intervention point. Someone pointed out, at least as far as the US is concerned, and I believe Canada has the same thing, if we eliminated the subsidy on corn, that's a high intervention point that's really distorting the system by making corn syrup and a lot of other not very healthy products really, really cheap. So eliminate the distortion in the market by the subsidy on corn, and suddenly food becomes a lot more nutritious. You're not sweetening it and putting all the other stuff that's made from corn into it. So that's a higher level intervention point. It's a fairly small change of just changing the rules, removing subsidies that distort the way that we see these systems operating. But yeah, it's a tough one. You have to understand the system well enough to know where those intervention points are. The leverage points in this culture are where people are starting to get dissatisfied. That I think a lot of people are starting to realize that the systems that they've relied on are not doing what they want them to anymore. That we're looking at gridlock in government and deteriorating infrastructure. And so identifying the places of dissatisfaction and people who are specifically dissatisfied with certain things and approaching them about that. You know, what's not working for you and what would we need to change to make it work? that it's that sense that something needs to change that's kind of the canary in the coal mine, that it's letting us know, ah, here's a place that's ready for change, and it's the people who are really expressing those sentiments that let you know, okay, here's a spot that we can work with. So those are some of the leverage points because those are the people who are ready for a paradigm shift. They're getting that, you know, I'm still doing the same thing I'm doing and it's still not working, what do I need to change? So helping people to understand the systems that they're embedded in and how they work and how to think about those systems a little bit differently. And encouraging, encouraging whole systems thinking to me is one really important part of showing people what's connected to what. If you do this, it changes that over there, which changes that over there. And we're not taught to think in those terms, but when people understand a system that they're in, you can show them, here's how this system works. There are commonalities among all systems. And we can learn to shift our paradigm to that whole systems view where we understand the linkages between things.
So we have a lot of institutions right now that are non-functional, dysfunctional, or anti-functional. They're not playing really good roles in society. And my experience with these are, and the thing to keep in mind with institutions is that they are made of people, that there are people in there. There may be rules and processes that are in place that are not really serving the people, but identifying the strategic individuals in those those institutions, the ones who are responsive. Just a, a rule of guerrilla warfare is to identify the friendlies. You know, we find out who our allies are, who are the people who are going to help you, and cultivating those people and seeing the actual individuals in those institutions who can act as agents of change from within them. Again, we're trying to look at it from a systems point of view. How do the systems of these institutions work, and what are the leverage points? And the leverage point are the people in particular the policymakers. So who's setting policy, who among the policymakers are friendly, and how can we begin working with them and help them to come more into alignment? Because they're aware as anyone else that, that these institutions are not all that functional. We just want to give them ideas of how the institutions can become more functional and also serve the public a little bit better than they do. Um, there's a book by Joel Salatin, who's probably the most famous farmer in North America these days, kind of really promoted by Michael Pollan. And he wrote a book called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Because he, he wanted to be able to butcher animals on his farm, but that was illegal. He wanted to be able, I mean, just all these things he wanted to be able to do. And a lot of sustainability is illegal. A lot of the things that we would like to do are against zoning laws. So a big chunk of what we need to be working on is policy. And I am not a policy person, but boy is my hat off to policy people. It is so important right now, because we kind of know what to do now. I think we've got a lot of the toolkit, but what we don't have is the people in the right places to really begin implementing it by changing policies and by setting up local governments, regional governments, whatever level it is, finding the policymakers. So a big piece of this is identifying the people, who are the policymakers, and how can we identify those of them or their staff or their lobbyists or whoever it is that influences them, identifying allies, identifying people who are willing to help. Those are the people that we want to cultivate, those people who are already a bit in alignment. Help them move to the next adjacent possible, you know, which will help us move to the next adjacent possible. We certainly have a lot of dysfunctional systems in place. I liked in uh, the few episodes back when Joe Salden's description of the U.S. duh. You mean the USDA? No, no. He said... You realize that the whole U.S. duh, I don't have the respect to call it the USDA, I call it U.S. duh. Um, <laughs> that the whole USDA, duh, duh, see, I can't, I can't even say it. Um, crop insurance and subsidy program helps to create unfair advantages for six crops, all of which are annuals, not perennials. You realize how untruthful the very predication of our system is, that it's predicated on a carbon depleting system. 
Does it build soil or deplete soil? Does it actually build carbon or deplete carbon? How do we deplete carbon? Well, we do it primarily with tillage. We do it with annuals. Nature's system to build carbon is using perennials. So obviously a truthful food and farming system should be one that's primarily pushing us toward perennials rather than annuals. These organizations are not out for our best interests. But I like the idea that by looking at things from our larger perspective and thinking in whole systems, many things become apparent. We can find the intervention points where people are dissatisfied, where things are dysfunctional, and we can then cultivate allies within these institutions to create change. Toby said so many amazing things in that last segment, but two things that really stood out for me were the idea that rural areas are more than just feedstocks for urban areas. And we constantly hear repeated, whether it's in policy discussions or speakers at conferences about trends of urbanization. And there's definitely trends of urbanization that are happening, but it seems like they're completely justified and never thought about from a critical perspective. Our whole system seems to be geared economically to turn rural areas into feedstocks for these urban areas. And it's really frustrating because there's so many different ways to live on our planet. And we want to make sure that we're creating beautiful, sustainable spaces for all types of living environments. And one other piece I wanted to highlight was on the idea of long-term thinking exhaustion. It's so easy to get burned out when you're only thinking about long-term trends. I know we like to cover a lot of really big ideas on our show, but I like to think that we also provide a balance because we're on a personal level thinking about short-term trends too, but I definitely understand what Toby's saying about getting exhausted by only thinking about the long-term. There's a lot that is happening that feeds into the long-term, but it's happening now. I really liked his illustration about how you should plant an orchard for your retirement, right? You should make sure that the trees go real straight and it's like a 40-year commitment, but at the same time, to avoid that big picture burnout, you wanna plant some radishes or some tomatoes or something for the short-term so that you can eat and stay happy and stay motivated because those long-term goals are not always the easiest to maintain. And having those short little segues into other more tangible things that you can see right away help you keep on track for those longer-term goals. You know, one thing's for sure. As Toby mentioned, the big it isn't working anymore. Our current disconnected rural and urban environments are dependent upon massive inputs of energy. And it seems that we've reached this crisis point. And what are we going to do about that? That's something we're going to be addressing in depth in our upcoming Built Environment series, which I think we mentioned before on previous podcasts. It's a really big series and you're working really hard on it, Kevin. But I mean, thinking about hundreds of hours of interviews and recorded talks and tying that together into a narrative that's coherent on all of these different important topics, it's really, really difficult. So it, it is coming, listening audience, it is coming. And a big part of this solution is moving away from this command and control model that's typical of our current economic system and economic thinking and moving toward these more decentralized flatter hierarchies that Toby discussed. And these are typical in horticultural-based societies. And it's through utilizing these permaculture principles that we can make that shift away from a reductionist and into a whole systems worldview. In this next segment, Toby covers some of the topics discussed in a permaculture design class as he expands on systems of food production and their overall ecological impact.
the conceptual design is thinking about, okay, what systems are going to support the vision and what resources do we have to create those systems with? And then you can think about, all right, what smaller systems support that? And a really important word, design, if we can remember that permaculture is about designing sustainable human habitats, how do we integrate the human footprint into the larger ecological footprint and make it work? And those words really sum it up then, because if we are designing sustainable human habitats, then the rest of the picture kind of takes care of itself. If we are helping human beings be sustainable or regenerative or whatever the current buzzword is, then that means that the larger ecosystems that we're embedded in are going to be in good shape. You can't have a sustainable human culture in an unsustainable ecosystem. It reminds us that we need to take care of the larger systems that we're embedded in. In permaculture, we always like to move to the higher generalization. What is the question we're really asking? What are we trying to do when we ask that question? What are we really driving at? And to me, it's that we want to make sure that our food is grown in a way that we really can agree with, that we want it to be responsibly grown and in ways that will enhance ecosystem health, systems that can bounce back from changes in conditions, systems that can respond to stresses. And industrial agriculture can't do that very well, except with massive inputs of energy. That's kind of how we've, we've made it work, is putting 10 calories of energy into one calorie of food, which kind of by definition is not sustainable. We've had a good 10,000 year run with agriculture. That's been pretty wonderful but I don't think we're going to be able to do it much longer the way we've been doing it because of the amount of energy that it takes to grow our food and the fact that we don't have productive ecosystems where there is modern agriculture. Even if they're polycultures, their annual vegetables are not an ecosystem. So we need to embed our food producing systems within a larger system allowing the ecosystems to still function rather than the way that we handle agriculture now, which is to clear whatever natural ecosystem is there and then plant corn, wheat, grapes, whatever it is. You know, we apply a bunch of energy to clear cutting the crops, plow up the field, take everything off, start the system again. So it's this constant reset at the one year period. And what we're trying to do in permaculture is to get somewhere where there's far more productivity, far more biodiversity, far more richness of patterns, far more closing of loops, all these variables, but we're only harvesting a little bit of it. There's so much that we only need a little bit of the surplus, as opposed to annual agriculture, where total productivity is much lower, but we take it all. You know, we're completely denuding the system and setting it back. But it takes energy to do that. If you arrest succession, it takes energy to hold it there. In industrial agriculture, they require tilling. So you're constantly disturbing the soil, which destroys a lot of the soil organisms. They have much shallower root systems, so they generally require a lot more water. And because you are tilling, you're clear-cutting. It's annual clear-cutting, really. I mean, if you think a clear-cut forest is not such a good thing, then the amount of farmland that we clear-cut every year just dwarfs the amount of forest that we clear-cut. So you're setting succession back, you're destroying the habitat. They generally require more nutrient inputs as well, so you're contaminating groundwater. 
the annual agriculture essentially destroys whatever ecosystem it's in, whereas perennial agriculture or horticulture, I like to think it of, actually can fit into existing ecosystems. In the long run, I think we need to move away from annual agriculture as much as we can, but right now it's an easy way to provide a lot of calories, but there are definitely drawbacks to annuals. One of the things that we look at is tree crops that provide calories, which would be nuts and also some of the leguminous trees that have edible pods and things like that. The other avenue that's really encouraging is the perennialization of a number of grain crops. Uh, the Land Institute in Kansas, Wes Jackson's place, uh, landinstitute.org, is looking at perennializing wheat. And they have a form of wheat called intermediate wheat, which is a native plant that it's regular wheat in Wes and his various researchers have been crossing intermediate wheat with other strains of wheat trying to increase the yields because intermediate wheat has really small seeds. I mean, its head is tiny compared to regular annual wheat. And right now they've got it at about 15% of the yield of annual wheat, but they're growing it also in a polyculture, which is really exciting. They're growing intermediate wheat with a legume called Illinois bundle flower, which has an edible seed that also produces a very useful oil. And they're also growing it with something called Maximilian sunflower, which is a perennial sunflower. And these are all native prairie plants. So you can create a polyculture that mimics the native prairie that provides quite a bit of calories in the form of wheat seeds and oils and edible seeds. And so that, that would be sort of the floor of a perennial calorie producing kind of savanna, I guess is the way I think of it, because then there could be nut trees. There are folks also working on breeding white oaks that really actually make a pretty tasty ground meal out of the acorns that don't need as much leaching. And then leguminous or, or pod bearing trees that you can make an edible meal out of mesquite for folks who live in desert areas. It makes a really delicious flour that's something that you can make bread and pancakes and things like that out of. So there are a number of perennial crops that are promising, but we're not there yet. We don't really have them for temperate areas yet. A lot of agriculture has been breeding blander and blander foods, and that is breeding a lot of the trace elements. A lot of minerals are bitter tasting, so you eliminate those when you, you breed them down to taste bland, as well as a lot of the other vitamins that are in them. Many of our annual vegetables have been bred to not be bitter. If you go back to their original ancestors, they're very bitter, much more bitter plants. Wild lettuce is really bitter but, and also contains lettuce opium, so you get sleepy when you eat wild lettuce. Perennial food plants have not been messed with as much as annuals, so they tend to resemble their wild ancestors more and they tend to have higher nutrient contents. So there's another argument for perennial food plants. Anywhere where there's adequate rainfall, which is you know, 20, 25 inches or more per year, land eventually, if left to its own devices, will turn into a forest. Less than that, you end up with a grassland or scrub desert, chaparral, but more than that, the natural endpoint of succession is a forest. And since in permaculture, we are trying to move to later succession ecosystems, including human ecosystems, food forests, have become really pretty celebrated in permaculture. I mean, it's such a great idea, right? Just walking around and being able to pick food. We had some folks talking about bike paths that are surrounded by food. And if you think about it, 
I mean, my friend Doug Bullock, who is a great permaculturist on Orcas Island just south of here, talks about how this comes about. He says, picture a group of sort of proto-human, ape-like beings. They've created some trails. They're living alongside water. Things are working out for them. And if you find food plants, trees that have really great fruit in them and that sort of thing, you're going to favor those plants. If something else is strangling them, you're probably gonna know enough to pull them down. You're gonna teach your kids not to break the branches off. And you're also gonna be eating those fruits and probably carrying some with you and tossing the seeds out, tossing the pits out after you've eaten them or you're gonna be pooping them out. So you'll gradually spread this whole area of similar food plants around you as you move around. And this is what's happened in the Amazon and a number of other extensive forest systems. The major river valleys in North America were essentially food forests before Columbian contact that if you look at the tree composition, like on the East Coast, even the major river valleys here, white oaks were grown in numbers that are far larger than what you would expect in kind of a random assemblage of a forest. The major forest species in the East Coast, as tallied by early botanists in the late 1500s and early 1600s, were white oak, which is a major food plant for native people, walnut, beech nut, hickory nut, several other nut species, and the understory was crab apples and cherry trees. So these are tended food forests. And when folks like Thoreau and Emerson and the other romantic poets started writing about the forest primeval, this kind of tangled, dark, scary wilderness that was out there, what they were actually looking at was a collapsed food forest that had lost its keystone species, the keystone species being the First Nations peoples who were tending these forests. After a century or two of no longer being tended, they had degenerated into swamp maple, black oak. Chestnut was another principal species, which we lost in the chestnut blight in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So these forests collapsed and turned into these kind of scary, tangled wildernesses that we know now. But most of this continent and most of the world in the major river valleys has been tended by human beings for thousands of years in these awesome ecosystems that were full of wildlife and really great places to live. So that kind of answers the why a food forest question is because we know how to do it. We've been doing it for a long time. Perennial crops, we've talked about perennial plants. The advantages over annuals, annuals are great. We're always gonna do some annuals, but a more perennial oriented agriculture or horticulture strikes me as a better idea. So there are lots of good reasons for why having food forests. The classic food forest, they talk about seven layers. If you are a lumper rather than a splitter, I think we can divide humanity into two types. We have people who like to lump into few categories and people who like to split into many categories. If you're a lumper, really think of a forest garden as three main categories, the trees, the shrubs, and the herbaceous plants. Folks divide them up a little bit more finely so that in a really stacked food forest, we've got a canopy layer, which would be large fruit trees, standard size apples, and nut trees, that most nut trees tend to be pretty big. Walnuts, pecans, beeches, hickories, all pretty good sized trees, chestnuts. Then there's a low tree layer, and most of our familiar fruit trees are lower forest trees. Apples that are not as big as standard apples, even standard apples aren't that tall compared to Douglas firs or chestnuts or walnuts. 
cherries, and then things like crab apples, pears, peaches, all the stone fruits tend to be shorter trees. So those are lower tree layer. Then there's a shrub layer, all the berry bushes, anything from hazelnuts, filberts that are pretty tall, shrubs, down to raspberries, blueberries, and, and even shorter berry bushes than that. Then we've got the herbaceous layer, the non-woody plants. So herbaceous doesn't necessarily mean herbs, or herbs, depending on how you want to say that. So the herbaceous layer, most of what we think of as our vegetables, annuals, and perennials. Then there's the rhizosphere, or the root layer. Potatoes, carrots, other tubers like yacon and oka and mashua, the Andean tubers. Lots of good tubers. Then there's the ground cover crops, strawberries and vining plants like that. And then there's the vertical layer, vines, twining up things. And then Paul Stamets would insist that you need a fungal layer in there as well. You need edible mushrooms as well as just those mycorrhizal associates that really help the soil come to life. And then there's an epiphyte layer that we could put things up in the canopy. So you got nine. And then we, you know, we could, if you're a real super splitter, we could continue on with more and more layers. But seven, kind of the most common basic layers to, to food for us. So what we've got here are different strategies, different levels to work with. Here's our, one of our goals. I've got to unpack this phrase, over-yielding polycultures. It's actually a useful phrase. Polyculture means diverse plants, not a monoculture, but different species of varieties of plants growing together. And what over-yielding means is that if we take the Native American triad of corn, beans, and squash, for example, the original guild, it turns out that if you planted the same amount of land to corn alone, or beans alone, or squash alone, you have less calories or harvest coming off of that land than you would if you plant corn, beans, and squash together. It turns out that the corn secretes a particular sugar that is about the best food possible for the nitrogen-fixing bacteria. They really like the corn sugar. The corn's the trellis, the beans the nitrogen fixer, and the squash form a living ground cover, and it is an over-yielding polyculture. In a polyculture, plants nest and kind of entwine with each other to increase the total yield over what you would have if you just had one species there, because the niches fit together. And that is the word over-yielding. Their yield is over what you would get with a monoculture. So we're looking for over-yielding polycultures. We're looking for incredibly great yields with a lot of diversity. And that's a good place to start, is this basic guild. People have asked me, why don't you have more vegetable guilds in your book? There are very few of them, because a guild, by definition, is a group of plants that synergize with one another and work with each other and also support things other than human beings. And annual vegetables don't support much other than human beings, except when some critter gets into our fields and eats stuff when we don't want them to. Wendell Berry talks about the splitting up of agriculture where you used to have the animal manures fertilize the crops, the crops fed the animals. We've split those up to giant confined animal raising operations where the manure is a big problem and places where the farms don't have the right fertility. We've created two problems out of one solution. So we want to go the opposite direction. Here's our culture right now where we, we extract things from a source, we use them, and then they go to what is technically known as the sink, away, 
is what that is. It leaves our system somehow and goes to the landfill out of the system. In permaculture, what we're trying to design, we start with the source, we sort it, we take the seeds out of it, we make it into stock, we feed it to animals, we take the animal manure and feed it to worms, or, or actually go into the biodigester, then we go to worms, then it goes to compost, then solar energy turns it back into food again, and you start the cycle again. But each one of these conversions is an opportunity for yield. And we're using different systems to extract more and more energy or resources from it before it goes to, in theory, to the sink, but really it's a closed cycle and you just apply a little solar energy to it. That's the external input and it converts it back into something that you can use. So this principle of highest use teaches you how to extract the maximum number of yields and kind of refine the yields all the way down the road until you've got a fairly seriously degraded thing that needs a new input of energy to turn it back into a resource again. But you're preserving as many possible options in the choice that you go through. Again, decisions. It's all decision-making processes. How do we decide? What do we do? And this is one way of doing that. Principle of highest use or design method. There is an important distinction between yield and loot. You know, you don't want to gut the system to get a yield out of it. You want an actual sustainable yield. So that again is coming to this understanding of how the system operates. What is a sustainable yield from that system? What is a byproduct that's coming from it? It's like if you plant fruit trees, the trees themselves are not the product that you're looking for. You're looking for the fruit, which in a way is kind of a byproduct of those trees. You know, the trees are harvesting rainwater, they're sequestering carbon, they're creating oxygen, they're shading the ground, and they're creating habitat, and they're putting out fruit. Those are all byproducts of the tree itself, if you think of the tree as the product. You don't go cut down the tree. You learn to run off of the byproducts of the tree, while the, the tree, the system, is still going, throwing off all these wonderful byproducts. So we're trying to set up systems that are throwing off abundant yields of byproducts that we can work with. Benefits of diversity, they're just all sorts of really great benefits. You know, there are more niches available when you have more diversity. Reduces competition because you've got plants that are rooting at different depths and plants with different nutrient requirements rather than all the same kind of plant, all wanting the same stuff. Increases productivity and yield because if you've got a cold year, the cold tolerant stuff will do fine. Next year, if it's hot, the hot tolerant stuff will do fine. Helps all the functions connect when you have more diversity. And diversity generally, not always, but generally helps increase the stability, the ability to absorb shocks and the ability to bounce back after shocks and the ability not to get too knocked off kilter. Bill Mollison borrowed a, a phrase out of the old Walt Kelly cartoon comic strip, Pogo. It says, we are overwhelmed by insurmountable opportunities. And I think that's a little bit of what this indicates.
We certainly have numerous opportunities to change our current relationship with nature. Everywhere we look, there are so many things that could be done better. And if we use the system approach that permaculture brings, we can begin to see new avenues for change, such as overcoming the many problems of our agricultural systems by implementing perennial systems demonstrated by using permacultural design. And as we were just hearing, the perennial systems that are based off of overyielding polycultures absolutely represent a different strategy from our current agricultural systems that basically just clear cut the entirety of farmland in order to obtain our food. And even organic agriculture doesn't address that challenge. It's exciting that it's now possible to design horticultural systems that can coexist with their surrounding environments while preserving ecosystem integrity. Something that really stood out for me in that last segment with Toby was the idea that the indigenous people of North America had food forests and that pre-European contact, that was where a significant amount of their food came from. And we never learned about it because the European peoples who discovered them had no idea what was going on. And they degenerated over time as population disruptions meant that these food forests could never be maintained. Yeah, these systems show us that we can provide for our needs from the abundance produced by byproducts instead of harvesting the entirety of the system every year. That reminds me of a quote I heard in my PDC class with Larry Santoyo. Sustainability is about creating and designing byproducts to cause what you want to happen. It's not about buying products, it's about creating byproducts. That's important. And that's really just the principles of responsible, wise investing. Instead of spending your principal, you are spending the amount that you gain on interest every year instead of digging into the stock. And we're just looking at how to do that with our food systems and with the way that the human environment interacts with nature. Instead of depleting all of our stocks, we're really just talking about building an economic system that's based on these sustainable flows. So Kevin, that clip we just heard there was from your permaculture design class. You're attending a PDC? Yeah, that's right. After covering permaculture for three years now and reading tons of books about the subject, I knew I really wanted to take an in-depth class. And I'm fortunate to have so many options to choose from here in the Pacific Northwest. But when I learned that Toby Hemingway was co-teaching a permaculture design course with Larry Santoyo in Seattle, I just had to sign up. And Fortunately, I was able to sign up before the class filled up. They do try to keep these classes at a reasonable cost, and they do fill up very quickly. So I'm so lucky to be able to attend. So, you know, Kevin, this isn't a commercial for your PDC class, but I would really like to hear about what your experience with education around permaculture been like. Could you focus on like what it's meant for your life, personal experience with your transformation, your, your own personal paradigm shift, perhaps? Well, I started out by reading a a lot of books on this subject, and I must say that that actually got me interested in sustainability. And of course, I listened to KMO's podcast, The Sea Realm. And that's actually how Justin and I met. And that was like five years ago. Yeah. And then you started The Extra Environmentalist. And after you started getting just amazing guests on, I knew I had to be a part of this. So you could say that permaculture really provided the impetus that I needed to realize that I wasn't just a cog in some machine generating revenue to buy stuff and be happy with the UPS man coming every week. It was actually about finding a purpose for my life. And the topics that we discuss on our show are just incredible to me, and I learned so much. So it's been incredible to 
be able to interview these people and really learn from the source. But I also think that there's a lot of other ways for our audience and others to learn about these subjects. So if you really resonated with everything that Toby Hemingway was saying today, he's got a few books, Gaia's Garden and also a new book coming out, The Permaculture City, Regenerative Design for Urban, Suburban and Town Resilience. And there's many other great books on permaculture available, such as those by Bill Mollison. And, and one of the things that's always been challenging for me is being in a university environment, there's so many amazing concepts in permaculture that never make it into classes that most people in a university environment, at least in my university, which prides itself on sustainability education, a lot of people really don't know that much about permaculture. And so you have a clip here, Kevin, about why permaculture thinking isn't very prevalent in university traditional higher education environments. I think that our educational system, the traditional way that education is approached is not very conducive to permaculture and kind of why the founders of permaculture have kind of kept it out of traditional educational institutions because it's so based in the command and control paradigm. And it, it's all about breaking things down into their individual parts, you know, like all of the, the departments are very separated. You know, it's really not conducive to integrative thinking. And it's also so reliant on the scientific method. And I love the scientific method. It is really important tool, but it can't be applied to everything. You know, modern science has kind of re tried to reduce everything to that. And that's what's brought us Monsanto, trying to reduce everything to these controllable elements. And so, you know, what we're doing is really integrative and it's process oriented. And so we need new ways of educating people that teach process over data and teach action learning. And that's really what Gaia University is about. That clip was from Jackie at Gaia University in Boulder, Colorado. You're from Colorado, actually, Kevin? Yeah, that's yeah. my hometown, my former hometown. Yeah, and we have a lot of great friends of the show in, in Boulder, such as the folks at Slow Money, but that clip definitely resonated for me because we try to do interdisciplinary thinking about sustainability challenges where I'm at in higher education at, at the University of British Columbia. And there's just so many problems that are institutional frameworks that it's extremely difficult to get beyond. So I completely understand why the founders of permaculture have been pursuing this whole PDC approach that's outside of our mainstream higher educational institutions to work on these concepts. Universities are so bad at action learning. I mean, I've been involved in stuff that's tried to do action learning over the years and it's just like, it always tends to fall flat because it's just so far outside of the mindset of how universities work. Although maybe you're at a university and listening to this right now and they're doing action learning really well. If you are, like, shoot me an example because I would love to have some in my back pocket that I could pull next time I'm working on some kind of grant application or something. And for those that are focused on permaculture, Peter Bain of the Permaculture Institute of North America discusses the state of education today. The answers that our society needs, the solutions we're looking for are not to be found in the university and conventional forms of education are failing people. They're piling up debt and they're leaving people without a path forward. We have a whole new society to create it means that the learning pathways are to be found outside the curricular walls so that people can get the uh, actual learning that will help them build the world we want. Creating the jobs of the future, 
I think the answer for many young people would be to get training in permaculture design, and those courses are all over the place. And I want to put a plug in here for the face-to-face -face course because there's a lot of appeal right now to online courses. You can learn a lot of things online. You can get a lot of technical information. What you need to understand about permaculture design is the art and skill and nuance of it, and that's going to come across to you much better working with a team of people who already understand it and do it, and in a live learning community. Challenged in that way, I think we all do much better. And the ability to deploy that learning, which is the most important thing. In other words, the ability to create a livelihood. So Peter made some really excellent points here. I really liked how he talked about the fact that learning doesn't always take place in the classroom. The fact that some people really get their their ideas and they get their most hands-on experience and they actually get, have the most learning taking place when it's not inside the walls. I think that's a really important point. It also goes along with his other point about how people really take a lot from learning in person. He mentioned how there's a lot of online learning going on and you know we've all done our fair share of online learning with YouTube or whatever, but when you go to an actual place and actually meet the people who are doing the work, who are hands-on in the space, making the changes and making the new kinds of mindsets, the paradigm shifts happen, it is much more powerful than learning out of a, a book or even just out of a YouTube video or something like that. So there's a lot of learning that can happen by yourself, but then to actually get a hands-on, to get deep inside of the actual paradigm shifting that needs to happen in your own brain or the people around you, it makes a lot of sense to go to a place where the actual leaders who have feet on the ground, who have boots on the ground are making the changes and doing the things that you want to change in your life. So that closes out the 87th episode of The Extra Environmentalist, reviewing permaculture ideas through the voice of Toby Hemingway. Kevin, do you have any thoughts that you want to leave us with as we close out here? I know you've been working on this episode for quite a while and working on it really hard. Yeah, I'd like to thank all the people who contributed their time to make this show possible. And you can learn more about these folks and the work that they do in our show notes. So thanks to our audience for continuing to listen to the Extra Environmentalists for really valuing the work that we do and donating to help to make shows like this possible, covering production, equipment, expenses associated with traveling to these events. It's all really incredible. And we wanted to thank a few of our listeners who have donated recently. So a big special thanks to Gavin from Massachusetts. We really appreciate the fantastic donation from Massachusetts. Thanks to Armand in New York for your generous donation. And for Benny out there in the newosphere. And also for Nathan, a longtime listener and supporter of our show. Nathan said, thank you for contributing so much to my journey toward the great turning, as Joanna Macy would say. Your work has added so much wealth to my life and informed important decisions I've made over the years. We are the cells of a larger body. And that's absolutely true, Nathan. Thanks for your continued listening support and also your financial support through donations. So that closes out the 87th episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Thanks to Kevin for editing this episode, but you don't hear his voice on all the episodes he does edit, which are all of them. He's edited all of these since, what was it, Kevin, episode? 42. 
Was that really the first one? 42. That was a long one. time ago, you know? That's so long, Kevin. Yeah, so you're going to hear Kevin's voice a little bit more in the near future as all of this material sees the light of day, which I'm really excited about. Me too. If you want to hear more of The Extra Environmentalist, all of our episodes are available online on the internet for your listening pleasure. Download them to your smart device, to your iPad, to your mother's computer, burn them to a CD to play for your grandmother, and take them to your baby cousins who are just, you know, starting to learn about the world and they need to know about permaculture. If you want to listen on a different medium, we've got Stitcher Radio. You can join the conversation on Twitter and on Facebook where there's a community online of people just waiting to hear your comment and to see the news story that you think is important for you to post and share with them. If you want to make a contribution to the Extra Environmentalist and be listed on this show, as you've heard some other listeners already listed, head over to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and find the banner on the right side of the show and send in your donation. If you donate more than $30, we will send you a fantastic t-shirt that we have customized to be amazing and look fantastic on your body and get you all fashionable for this summer of amazingness. Nobody's left us a voicemail in a really long time, so... That's because we've been really slow at putting out episodes. Thanks to Kevin's help, we're going to be much more consistent on releasing these shows once a month. But if you do want to leave us a voicemail, which I highly recommend you do, because, you know, why not? You can be on the show and everyone will listen to you and hear your message. Send us a voicemail on our online voicemail box over at... 919-701-XTRA. That's... 701-919-9872. And we will be sure to review your message and comment on it and probably put it on the show so everyone can hear you. So for everyone out there listening to episode number 87, we are so happy that you've made it this far into the episode. Go find yourself some coffee beans, grind them up, and make some tasty coffee for the summertime. And maybe throw some ice in it. Stop trying to be rich, try to be valuable. You will be welcome everywhere because we're taking this seriously now and it's up to you to get us through to the very end. There's no question that the future is abundant. Stop believing anything else. next episode of the extra environmentalist episode number 88 we talk about the resilience imperative cooperative transitions to a steady state economy with mike lewis and pat conady and donnie mcclurkin of the post-growth institute 
about his book, How on Earth, on a not-for-profit economy that can thrive in a post-growth world. There was some work done around how would we develop a cooperative bank in the 19th century, lots of ideas and experiments. A cooperative system that wouldn't be based on interest, that could be based on fees, uh, fees for service. Uh, Silvio Gazelle looked at nature and he could see that um, everything that's in the natural world, in the biosphere, has a life cycle. So, you know, a tree, you seed it, it grows, and it could be hundreds of years in terms of an, like an oak, t- oak tree, or much less in terms of a pine tree. Something that's been artificially created, in other words, an artifact of human innovation, um, banking, um, has a product uh, based on interest, which is compounded, and it doesn't tend to die. It tends to kind of accumulate and grow and grow and grow. And that's kind of not natural. It doesn't mimic nature. Uh, in fact, it, it, it mimics the worst things of nature when things actually go mad, like cancer that has this explosive growth. And what we know with cancer is that cancer is just a killer. A lot of the world is trying to move on up the ladder in large part because of the manufactured aspirations and the endpoints that have been put forward by the capitalistic market of what success is. So stemming from this financial inequity, you see this social stratification, and then that social stratification leads into the consumption habits, which are essentially the consumption habits of overconsumption, either through necessity or through aspiration. In other words, any system that centralizes wealth and power will always be unsustainable because of the social dynamic that it drives. Next on Channel 5, a mind-bending documentary telling the story of the investment strategy built around the brand new wristwatch device, the Chrono Ticket, the watch device that bases your investment philosophy on your body's hormones at any one point in time. Under Wearables, the show that digs deep into the dirty world. Under Wearables and their many devices. We take you to where they're made, how they're made, and where they're strapped on. Ah, don't put it there. No details spared. We show you the ugly truth. Hey, toupee, you're fired. Even Donald Trump's toupee is a wearable. On this week's show of Underwearables, we dig into the hottest new trend in investing and wearable devices, the chrono ticker. Do you hang tan on the craziest waves? Do you jump out of planes on the regular and also want to make a lot of money in the stock market? Well, the Chrono Ticker is for you. Meet the first watch that dials up and down your risk tolerance on your portfolio based on the hormones in your body at any moment. The Chrono Ticker. I just jumped out of this plane and now my entire portfolio is in lensless sunglasses. It's the new trend, man. I invested in chlorinated bodies water. It's a new weight loss strategy. Spray on sunscreen sun panel. Not only am I generating electricity for my wearable, but I'm protecting my skin. I'm investing in the Gobi Desert Oasis. 
they've struck water, apparently. I've, I've heard they're making new breakfast cereals out of grasshoppers. The new granola. I can't ever get off the couch. But the chrono ticker makes sure that when I look at my portfolio, I won't see anything that I'm not expecting. Oh, look. I just put it all into IBM and U.S. government bonds. How exciting. Whew. I just finished this bungee jump, and my chrono ticker put my entire portfolio into the Greek banking system. Whew. It was the closest thing I could find to falling off a cliff entirely. The capital controls are just part of the rush. I'll make massive returns when the ECB and the IMF bails out the entire system. They, they are going to bail it out, right? The chrono ticker. Make final trades with your final signs. As you can see, there's a dearth of new investment opportunities being funded by the Chrono Ticker. The founders of the Chrono Ticker explain their rationale for developing such a novel device. We've paired the Chrono Ticker's patented sensing technology that monitors the adrenaline levels in the body with the Wall Street Investment Brokerage System that not only monitors your body's sweat output, but matches your adrenaline levels with the newest and best stock picks. Jump out of a plane, invest in something risky. If you prefer sleeping at home, we'll give you a blue chip. It just goes like that. Consumer Reports testing found that sometimes the chrono ticker picks the same stock no matter what you do. We spoke to an expert at the newly minted Wearables Consumer Protection Agency to find out where the problems might be. The chrono ticker is an extremely expensive device that just picks things randomly. We have found zero correlation between what actually people are doing and what stocks they will be picking. Sometimes, a slow, fat person will be paired with a running company, while a very active, healthy person will be paired with a stock that is not anywhere close to what they're doing. The concept of investing in stocks that meet your lifestyle, of dialing risk tolerance based on your activities and body hormones, seems like a great idea. But who's really behind it? The Underwearables team has investigated. The Underwearables team went undercover to find a former ChronoTicker employee who was not disgruntled and definitely spoke to us on the best terms possible, but revealed dark secrets inside the company. We would have changed their voice to protect their identity, but they had a horrible sore throat. So this is just what the audio sounded like anyways. To pick stocks for the ChronoTicker, we have a monkey running around in circles. Wherever he drops his poop is where we pick the stocks. It doesn't really matter at all what the people are doing, but it makes them feel good to think that they're doing something that helps them pick their stocks. We were offloading bad stocks from all the major investment houses and just throwing them into people's watches. It was like a crazy time. It was, it was so insane. I was just snorting coke like crazy. The investment bankers were just paying us to throw their stocks into the chrono takers queue and people were buying them. It was totally insane. The whole new series of watchback securities totally failed. It caused the crash of most of the African economies. The Chronotica team is under investigation by the SEC, and as a side note, the SEC has no idea why they approved this idea originally. We found the mother of the Chronotica founders, and she had this to say. I'm just so proud of my boys. They've made so much money. Oh, I love my gold Ferrari. It's a beauty. 
We'll leave it for our viewers to decide. Chrono Ticker, is it something that you should wear? Is it really time to embrace this idea? Or is it just a monkey shitting in a room? We'll let you decide. For the Underwearables team, we're signing off. Chrono Ticker made me invest in a tea bag company that has no tea in the bag. My Chrono Ticker invested half my portfolio in a dull knife company. But they say the knives are to cut rotten fruit. And the knives don't cut you when you touch them. They're safe. I was attacked by sharks with the chrono ticker on my arm. I lost both my legs and half my arm. And as it was happening, all my money was put into this permanent safe company. Everything I owned was put in a block of concrete. No one could get into it, but neither could I. And they told me it was a safe investment. Thanks, Chrono Ticker. It only cost me half an arm and two legs. Even the Chrono Ticker was bitten off. It's inside a shark. Not a Wall Street shark. A real shark. My portfolio's never been better. I just ran this marathon, and the Chrono Ticker put all my investments in the Chinese stock market. How could I ever lose? Thanks, Chrono Ticker. Chrono Ticker. It's time to invest your surplus in our abundance.